strike out hard enough or pull away strongly enough, we won't have to experience it. And in the teachings, as I know has been talked about before, there are three main personality types that are talked about. That is the greedy type, the angry type, and the deluded type, which are not very nice names. But they all point to certain constellations of energy. Clearly, all of us experience grasping, aversion, or delusion. It's kind of what makes the world go around. But there are also times when somebody has a very strong predominance or one, of one or another of these factors. And so we say the greedy type, the angry type, or the deluded type. Just for fun, I'll go into a little bit of detail about discerning which type you are. I think it is fun because it, it sort of sets everything on a standard of great impersonality. You know, if you recognize yourself at all, and you may not in, entirely, but if you recognize even a part of yourself in this, you can understand, wow, it's not me. <laughs> it's merely a constellation of energies that's part of my conditioning. And if you've got to be one or the other, I mean, it's not like one is really better than the other. <laughs> uh, but you may find yourself in all of these descriptions. The greedy type of person is somebody who seeks to see pleasure and discount the unpleasant aspect of things because they like to enjoy life. They don't want to see that things change because that's an unpleasant recollection. (laughs) And so... I often compare it to the type of person who, if you're in a meeting with them and some issue comes up for discussion, they'll say, it'll all work out. And you think, how? How's it all going to work out? I think I have a new story about Joseph, who's a a quintessential greedy type and (laughs) self-confessed. So this isn't like telling on him or anything. Where some time ago, uh, we all tend to try to fly on the same airline all the time so that we have frequent flyer miles that accumulate. And he being as tall as he is, it's um, a great love of his life to have frequent flyer miles so that he can upgrade on his travel. So I said to him once, I said, Joseph, I have a great test of detachment for you. What if that airline that we have accumulated all these frequent flyer miles on happens to go bankrupt before you can use all your frequent flyer miles? And he looked at me and he said, it's not going to happen. <laughs> okay, not going to happen, all right. That's a greedy type of mind. <laughs> it's not a greedy person, but it's the greedy type of personality. The angry type is just the opposite. And remember that uh, in the Buddhist psychology, in the Abhidhamma, anger and fear are exactly the same mind state. It's just different forms of the same of the same energy. One is a very outflowing, more assertive, aggressive form, and one is a more frozen, held-in form, but they're just the same type. So this is the angry type. An angry type of person tends to walk into a room and see what's wrong. They say, oh, I don't like what that person's wearing, and I don't like, you know, I don't like the pictures they hang on the wall, and I think they could have done better with the wallpaper, and really that carpet is very unfortunate. And, you know, and, and their eye just lights upon everything that really isn't right. And so 
they might sit in a meeting and somebody will bring up an issue for discussion and the first words out of their mouth will be, it's not going to work. And you think, maybe it could work, you know? Why are we so sure it's not going to work? And then the deluded type is muddled, <laughs> is confused. Or as they say, a deluded type might walk into a room and just not notice anything much until it's pointed out to them. I, <laughs> I'm uh, clearly a deluded type, and I'm told by many of my friends that I travel with who are greedy types that a, a deluded type is a very nice person to travel with, especially if you're sharing a room. Like, I went through China and Tibet with a friend of mine once in the 80s who was a self-confessed greedy type, and we would check into some hotel somewhere, and, and she would say, well, do you mind if I take that bed over there? And I'd say, no. Maybe 15 minutes later, I'd look at her and I'd say, why did you want that bed? And she'd say, well, the mattress isn't sagging and the mosquito net doesn't have a hole in it and it's closer to the window so I can control the window. It's closer to the light switch so I can control the light switch. And she had this whole long list of everything that was preferable about that bed, none of which I had noticed until she pointed out. You know, if you have a tendency to be a greedy type, then you may hear, this description of these three personality types, and you might think, wow, you know, this is so interesting. Like, I want to be a greedy type. (laughs) That sounds so much better than the others. And if you're an angry type, you might think very dismissively, well, how can everybody fit into three little simple categories? No, this is... (laughs) This is so stupid. This is, I hate this kind of thing. It's really, this is so dumb. And if you're a deluded type, you might just sit there thinking, which one am I? <laughs> you know, I don't know which one I am. Who am I? The Vasudhimaga, which is the ancient commentarial work in the Theravada tradition, or the Path of Purification, this is translation into English, describes each type in detail in terms of many different facets of ordinary life and ordinary day. They'd say, when one of greedy temperament sees even a slightly pleasing visible object, they look long as if surprised. They seize on trivial virtues, discount genuine faults, and when departing, they do so with regret as if unwilling to leave. When one of angry temperament sees even a slightly displeasing object, They avoid looking long as if they were tired. They pick out trivial faults, discount genuine virtues, and when departing, they do so without regret, as if anxious to leave. When one of deluded temperament sees any sort of visible object, they copy what others do. (laughs) If they hear others criticizing, they criticize. If they hear others praising, they praise. But actually, they feel equanimity in themselves, the equanimity of unknowing. You can discern the type of person, and again, this is if one of the three is very, very strong. You can discern the type of person by the posture. When one of greedy temperament is walking in their usual manner, they walk carefully, put their foot down slowly, put it down evenly, lift it up evenly, and their step is springy. One of hated temperament or angry temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, put their foot down quickly, lift it up quickly, and their step is dragged along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, 
put their foot down hesitantly, lift it up hesitantly, and their step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of one of greedy temperament is confident and graceful. That of angry temperament is rigid. That of deluded temperament is muddled. When they sit or they lie down to go to sleep, one of greedy temperament spreads their bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing their limbs, and they sleep in a confident manner. When woken, instead of getting up quickly, they give their answers slowly as though doubtful. One of hating temperament (coughs) spreads their bed hastily anyhow. With their body flung down, they sleep with a scowl. When woken, they get up quickly and answer as though annoyed. One of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downward with their bodies sprawling. (laughs) When woken, they get up slowly saying, huh? (laughs) Also in action, in sweeping, etc., one of greedy temperament grasps the broom well and they sleep cleanly and eagerly without hurrying or scattering the sand as if they were strewing flowers. One of angry temperament grasps the broom tightly, and they sweep uncleanly and unevenly with a harsh noise, hurriedly throwing up the sand on each side. One of deluded temperament grasps the brooms loosely, and they sweep not cleanly or evenly, mixing the sand up and turning it over. <laughs> and on it goes. And as I said, clearly we all have qualities, each of these three qualities. But sometimes it is the case that you can feel that you're just put together in a certain way so that you have a much stronger tendency toward one or the other. And they each, through the force of of mindfulness, get transmuted. It's not like you decide what, what characterizes you and then you consign yourself to that for the rest of your life. But as I said, it can be interesting to have just that sense of the impersonality of it all to see how all of our conditioning, all of these patterns are simply playing out and that we don't have to feel so, so fretful, so ashamed, so, so aghast at the kinds of patterns that we see, but more learn how to skillfully work with them. And I am a classic deluded type. I keep thinking I'm going to change, and some people say I have changed, <laughs> but uh, there's so many stories about me in delusion that it's hard to, to actually believe that fully. My greatest delusion story happened uh, one year here when I was teaching. And one night I went to Cambridge to give a talk, came back, my car had very little gla- gas left in it. And I went to sleep and woke up the next morning and walked over here, noticing that my car was gone. So I had this very confused thought because deluded types don't do very well in the morning. I thought, well, you know, maybe somebody guessed that my car was low on gas and they just took it and they put some gas in it. So I walked in here and walked into the staff dining room and I saw the person on staff who, if anybody were to have taken the car to put some gas in it, it would have been him. So I said, you see my car? And he said, no. Isn't it there? And I said, no, it's not there. My car's gone. And then came, like, the killer moment. He looked at me and he said, are you sure? (laughs) And I thought, am I sure? (laughs) I mean, a car, it is early in the morning, but a car is really a big object. And you think that, you know, if I walked by a car, I would notice there was a car there. It really seemed to be an absence of a car, not a car. But I looked at him and I said, am I sure? 
So he knew me very well, said, I'm going to go check. <laughs> and then I was just in the staff dining room, and one of the other teachers came in who was a very strong, angry type. And I said, have you seen my car? And she said, your car's gone? I said, yeah, I think it's gone. And she said, well, you know, you just lent it to somebody and you forgot who. So I thought, okay. <laughs> I lent my car to somebody and I forgot who. And then I went upstairs and I was doing interviews and uh, listening, I swear, to everybody. <laughs> but every once in a while I'd think, who did I lend my car to that I can't remember, you know? That's really odd. And you know, the morning went by that way and then I came downstairs for lunch and I ran into another teacher and I said, have you seen my car? And just then, Joseph came by, and he said, oh, I know what happened to your car. I said, what happened to my car? And he said, well, somebody had an emergency this morning, and they called, and it was the only car that was really available to take, so I just told him to take it. And then he said, I didn't think you'd notice. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's the sorrow of being a deluded type. But whether or not we are a deluded type, We all experience delusion, either in its, you might say, its pure form, or as it weaves itself throughout grasping and aversion, different moments in our lives. When delusion is strong, there is a lot of restlessness and perplexity in our minds. We feel very unsettled, like we don't, we feel like we don't belong in our own bodies, we don't belong in this mind, in our own experience. It's like we're inhabiting something strange. Often, In delusion, we don't tend to experience things in an integrated way, but rather we experience things as a puzzling array of pieces, and we can't quite tell how they might fit together. We don't quite get how things can be connected or interrelated. And this can have a very profound effect on us. So, for example, it's very difficult to look at suffering directly and to look at it well which means being able to be connected to it, open to it, not avoiding it, and yet not being overwhelmed by it. It's easier to wrap ourselves in delusion and simply not see, not really acknowledge what we're experiencing. And it can also be difficult to experience joy, to open fully and experience well states of rapture, of happiness, of delight. It's easier to either cling in the old way and actually disconnect from the present moment's experience of joy as we're lost in the anticipation of how we're going to keep it. Or sometimes it actually, for some people, it is, it is practically unbearable. And so there, too, is a preference to look the other way. We'd rather be numb than to feel that acutely. We'd rather be disconnected, and that is delusion, that which numbs us, that which disconnects us. Because of delusion, we miss a lot. We feel lost in a cloud. We're lost in a stupor. And this can happen very strongly when our experience is not strikingly pleasant nor strikingly unpleasant, when things are just kind of neutral. It's a breath. It's a sound. It's a sensation in the body that doesn't have a characteristic of great pleasure or great pain. We can be so untrained, really. We can live in in such numbness that 
sometimes it takes something strikingly pleasant or strikingly unpleasant just for us to wake up, just for us to feel alive. And so here it is. Here's our training. To actually break out of that cloud of delusion and feel a breath fully. To feel our foot against the ground, taking a step fully. Because really, if you add all the moments in our lives which we're not really living completely, we're not really present for because we're holding on, which makes us leap into the future and disconnect from what is. And you add to that all the moments that we're not really experiencing fully because they're unpleasant, so we're either pulling away from them or pushing them away. And then you add all the moments that are neutral that we're not really connecting to. That's a lot of moments. What's left is this little pile of moments where we're actually being present. The force of delusion can be very strong, but the force of mindfulness is actually a lot stronger. It's only because we don't pay attention that we offer our hearts to the state of delusion that we imagine that there will be there will be peace, that there will be some kind of lasting satisfaction there. But if we take a look, we can actually see very clearly what's the nature of things. We can see how much everything is actually changing. We can see the nature of unsatisfactoriness when, we, when we're confused, when we count on things being other than the way they are. And we can see on many different levels that teaching of selflessness, how there doesn't seem to be a little being in there in charge of the unfolding of events because they would have said, okay, you know, I've suffered enough. I've been here some weeks and you know, from now on, it's all going to be just rosy. It's going to be great. And they would have been successful. When we really pay attention, then we see that we have the capacity in our minds through awareness, through compassion, to be with unpleasant experience and to have that be okay. It's not pleasant. It's not that what is difficult becomes just fine. But we can, in fact, be with the unpleasant experience without the energetic reaction of pushing against it or recoiling from it. We can have a much more spacious and present relationship to it. And we can be with pleasant experience and enjoying it fully, without adding that extra thing of somehow feeling if we cling hard enough, it's really going to be okay. It's going to be better. And certainly we can learn to be with neutral experience in a very different way. When I was first in India and practicing this particular technique or lineage of practice, I remember when I first got the instruction of trying to make a mental note of everything that was predominant in my experience all day long, 
I found myself walking around this compound in India, and the most frequent mental note that I kept making was waiting. I just saw myself walking around this compound going waiting, 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 until finally one day I said to myself, what are you waiting for? And I realized I was waiting for something intense enough to happen or significant enough to happen or spiritual enough to happen so I could note it. And that I was actually living in a way like a a tape recorder with the pause button on. I was waiting for life to happen another time. We can connect to the pleasant, connect to the unpleasant, and connect to the neutral. And the force of delusion won't be all that powerful. It's also taught, and I found this quite interesting, that because of delusion, not only do we miss a lot, and not only do we lose confidence in our own perception, but we also tend to get lost in our suffering more completely because we're confused. We forget different alternatives of a way to, to relate to that suffering. You know how it is when you get really afraid? When was the last time you were really afraid and your mind went on to think, well, you know, there are lots of different possible outcomes here. You know, if it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way. Really, you know, it's a big world. And, you know, if this doesn't happen, that might happen. I mean, that's not the nature of fear. The nature of fear is to have tunnel vision, for everything to, to collapse down into one certain terrible outcome, as though we knew that this is the way it's going to be. Well, that's the element of delusion in the fear that, that closes us down, that has us forget. And it's the same thing with aversion, with anger, you know, in its striking out form. I tell this story sometimes about this time when, it's a very contempo example, when I was doing uh, email one day on my computer, and I got an email from somebody who wrote to me and said, can you explain to me what the problem is with anger? What's the problem with anger? So I, I wrote back to him and I said, well, you know, one of the problems with anger is that when we're lost in it, when we're subsumed in that state, then we tend to put people in a box. You know, we just kind of rigidify our notion of them. We put them in a box. And then I got offline and I was doing something else on my computer and something horrible happened in the relationship between my computer and my printer, and I got really angry. I got really, really angry. First I got angry at uh, this person who was on staff, who was our computer assistant, who happened to be on vacation just then, and I was fuming. You know, how could he leave me just when this was about to happen? And, you know, this is horrible. You know, how could he just abandon us and go off on vacation, totally forgetting that In fact, the reason he was on vacation was because I had decided he really needed a vacation, and I'd sent him to, you know, a vacation. I actually had gone to the airport and signed over some of my frequent flyer miles so he could take a a vacation, and I totally forgot that. I was just lost in the deluded swirl of the anger. And then I was really angry at myself. You know, I said, why can't you be the kind of person who can fix these things? And I was pulling out plugs and pushing in other plugs, and in the meantime, I fixed it, but I was so angry at myself that I barely noticed, I barely registered the fact that I had actually fixed it. 
So I was just in this completely diluted swirl of anger, and finally I recognized that I'd fixed it. I got back on my chair, I went back to work, and after some time I went back online, and lo and behold, there was my original email correspondent who said to me, well, I don't understand what you mean by saying when we're lost in anger, we just put somebody in a box. So I wrote to him and I said, well, this is what just happened. You know, I put this other person in a box and I put myself in a box as though that limited perception defined all sense of possibility of who I was, who he was, all we could ever be. That quality of getting lost in is the nature of delusion. And when delusion is very strong, we will really latch on to our pain because we won't remember that there could be another way, there could be another kind of relationship. Something that I found quite interesting and challenging in the Buddhist teaching was the idea that if we do something harmful, we do something hurtful, something that's motivated by by greed or by anger, for example, and we do that not knowing that it's unskillful, not knowing that it's unwholesome. So in other words, there's ignorance or delusion on top of the greed or the anger that motivated it, then the the karmic consequence, the consequence of that action, will be worse than if we were to do that action knowing all the while that it was inappropriate, knowing that it was unskillful. It's very confusing in a way because it's very different from the kind of conditioning that most of us perhaps have, which says something like, well, you knew better, and because you knew better, it's even worse that you went out and did it. But it's actually the opposite of that, and it's a very pragmatic description. And Buddha was talking in very pragmatic terms of how the mind works. If we do something and we don't understand that it will harm us or that it will harm somebody else, if we're that out of touch, either with our own feelings or with the feelings of others, with the reality of a situation, then we will completely throw ourselves into that action. We will completely abandon ourselves into that action. We'll pour ourselves into it. There's no part of us that's, that's hesitating, that's pulling away from doing it. So it's almost like the full force of that pouring of our energy is happening along with the grasping or the aversion. Ignorance, as well as those two states or whatever is motivating us, will be planting a seed in that moment. So when we reap the fruit of that moment, that seed, we're reaping the fruit of that intensity. We're reaping the fruit of that fullness of grasping or anger plus the ignorance. Whereas if we do something and we know that it's wrong, Usually what we experience is a moment of wanting to do it, a moment of pulling back and saying it's not the right thing, then a moment of wanting to do it and a moment of pulling back, and then finally we get completely overcome perhaps and we just go ahead and do it. But we also can receive the karmic fruit of all those moments of pulling back, of hesitating, of not wanting to harm, of feeling sensitive to the pain that might be caused. So all of that hesitation the wisdom, the clear seeing will bear fruit as well as the grasping or the aversion that finally has us do it. 
it's because of delusion that we forget what we actually know. That we do fall into the force of what causes us suffering more completely. And it's because of delusion that we forget that there are many, many ways of perceiving and interpreting any single event, that our perception of reality, our interpretation of reality is not universal, it's not absolute truth that it is born out of conditions like everything else. And so here, too, we can see how if we forget that, there is a much greater sense of rigidity and judgment and much greater suffering. We really fall into a pool of much greater suffering. We cling and we condemn, forgetting that the experience is one thing and the interpretation of the experience is another. I don't know, did Joseph tell the story about the time we were staying in a hotel and the fire alarm went off? We were staying in a hotel once and the fire alarm went off um, in like three o'clock in the morning. And I had a, we were on our way to Russia and I had a sprained ankle, I think. So I grabbed my crutches and my passport and I hobbled out into the hallway. And I noticed Joseph grabbed his passport and his talk notes because we were on our way to Russia to teach. And we went down into the lobby. It was the most amazing scene because everybody was so different. There were people there fully dressed, makeup, jewelry. (laughs) There were other people there completely rumpled and haphazard. And it was so amazing to see that actually we were all very different, weren't we? The story that I tell most often about that has to do with this time when I was um, in Burma. And one day during lunch, I bit down on a whole chili pepper and my mouth just caught on fire. And it happened to be just before I had an interview with Upandita. So when I went to see him, I said something to him like, why do... Burmese people like the taste of chilies so much. And he said, well, we don't like the taste of chilies very much. And I said, well, why don't you put so many in the food then? And he said, well, you know, we have a belief that when you bite down on that chili pepper and that stinging, burning sensation that you get, we believe that it will clean your palate, it's very good for your digestion, it's very good for your health. So we put a lot in the food. We then went on to talk about these two different levels or layers of reality. One is the natural property of an experience. You bite down in a chili pepper, there's a stinging, burning sensation if your tongue is in working order. But then on top of that, there are the layers of experiences of the past, projection into the future, hopes, fears, belief systems, all the different elements of our conditioning. That's different. That's not universal. You know, I would gather from what he said that a Burmese person might bite down on that chili pepper and think, oh, good. You know, I'm clearing my palate. This wonderful stinging, burning sensation is so good for my health. You know, and I bit down on the chili pepper, and I thought, I've got to get out of here. (laughs) I've got to get out of this country. It's just an hour flight to Bangkok. I can get a salad if I go to Bangkok. I haven't had a salad in so long. You know, this food is killing me, and there's no doubt about it. Same burning sensation, two totally different interpretations. It was like being in that lobby in, in the... London Hotel. 
but we they're so enmeshed in our minds we feel like there is only one reaction that could possibly be linked to that experience and yet it's not and there's there's our possibility of freedom saying it doesn't have to be the way it is in terms of our reaction our response it's a layer it's a layering process we can fully experience what is but maybe not in the same old way if we don't want to you know we think that it always intrigued me actually to think well if somebody stood here in the middle of this room and did something or said something some people would get very frightened and other people would get very angry and some people would feel a lot of compassion and some people would feel amused and there would be so many different responses. There's not one response that's locked into, inherent in the action. But we think there is. That's the force of delusion. To see that there actually can be space between the experience in the moment and our response to it is the opposite of delusion. It's wisdom. It's seeing that we don't have to rigidify our world. We don't have to be that presumptuous. And we don't have to be that forlorn in terms of possibility for ourselves of being another way. It's always changing. When we're lost in delusion, we forget that. We think, okay, chili pepper bad or chili pepper good. And so we miss all kinds of possibilities in this world of constant change, of mutability. And we forget how much we're making up. We forget how much is really just our interpretation, that it doesn't have a kind of solidity, it doesn't have an inherent reality, that so much of what we are looking at, so much of what we see, is really just these layers of conditioning. It's not the natural property. It's not the burning, stinging sensation of the chili pepper. It's everything we are making of it. And we forget that those are two different things. I've often told the story here about when we first moved in, in 1976, in February. The place was so big that we had somebody wander around and draw a map so we could find our way around. And we first had come to see it in December of 75, Joseph and Jack and I and some of the friends. And we walked through the main building, and then we got to the wing, which is now known as the Catskills. And Joseph, who'd grown up in a resort in the Catskills, said, this wing looks just like a hotel in the Catskills. And we all just laughed. It was like this joke. Then we went on, and two and a half months later, when we actually moved in and this guy went around and made the map, I went down from my room one day and I looked on the bulletin board and there was the map, and underneath that wing it said Catskills. And I thought, oh, that's really funny. Joseph made a joke. You know, he said it looked just like a hotel in the Catskills. Well, never, you know, we've got to find another name for it because this will never last. You know, and year after year went by and everyone just called it the Catskills and the Catskills and... Finally, one year, not too long ago, a friend of mine came here for the first time, and as happens when you come here for the first time, he was given a tour, and he got to that particular wing, so he said to the the staff person who was his tour guide, he said, why is this wing called the Catskills? And the tour guide went into a very 
pontificating explanation of how well, you know, we call it the Catskills because it's the wing that lies closest to the Catskill Mountains and, you know, and did this whole thing, and, which first of all I understand is not true, not that I have any sense of direction because I don't, being a deluded type, but <laughs> I'm told that it actually lies furthest from the Catskill Mountains. <laughs> and he came and told me this and he said, I understand you named the wing because of its proximity to the Catskill Mountains. And I thought, why in the world would we name a wing of this building because of the fact that it lies closest to the Catskill Mountains. But I was like, Joseph made a joke. You know, and year after year goes by, and it's still called the Catskills. I imagine now it will always be called the Catskills. There's nothing to be done at this point. But why? You know, and I can just imagine the legends that are woven year after year, either in people's minds or out loud, as to why it's called the Catskills. It's like we make up so much. Things arise, sometimes for no good reason whatsoever. They assume a life of their own. And when we cling to that sense of category, we cling to that idea, not knowing at all what purpose it might serve, that that assumption, that holding on tightly, is also the force of delusion. But really, our lives are very conditioned. Things are very relative. Times that look really difficult from one point of view might look really wondrous from another. Things that seemed unfortunate can sometimes turn out to have been really very lucky. There's so many twists and turns depending on where we stand and how things seem to be. It's like for those people who experience um, tremendous pain in their bodies, you know, sometimes, of course, it's a great affliction, it's, it's a great challenge. And then for some people, you know, who have not really felt anything much at all, that arising of pain is an enormous opening. And so that which might have been really terribly unpleasant for somebody is, is something that is considered something you're really grateful for in a whole other circumstance. Everything is changing. It's very mutable. That's actually the nature of the world. It's very relative. Our perceptions, our interpretation, our assumptions, our conclusions. So why cling to them? Rather, we can strip away that that layer as much as possible of supposition, of judgment, of delusion, and try to come close to our experience as it actually is. Rilke said that our deepest fears are like dragons guarding our deepest treasures. And for each of these qualities, these defilements of grasping, aversion, and delusion, it's like there's a treasure within each of them, It's mindfulness that is like the alchemical agent that allows us to be with any of our experiences and actually transform the energy of grasping or transform the energy of aversion or transform the energy of delusion so that we can, in some ways, it's like we can touch and uncover and utilize the treasure that's hidden within each one of them. It said that if your thing is grasping, or if you are 
overcome by grasping, even if you don't consider yourself a greedy type, then the jewel that's hidden inside of that can be transmuted to faith because grasping and faith have in common the willingness to open, to approach life, to come close to experience, to love life, to experience things fully. It's just grasping has that extra edge of clinging, of, of delusion, of thinking we can keep in control. But if we can look at the nature of grasping and not get lost in it, not get bewildered by it, it's almost like we can utilize that energy in a positive sense and, and use it to help us have more and more faith and trust in that kind of movement toward the experiences of life. And the jewel that's hidden in aversion, whether it's anger or fear, is a kind of wisdom. Because very often that aversive mind, that aversive person, or any of us when we are lost in a state of aversion, when it's very strong, sometimes we're seeing things that other people don't want to see or that we ourselves may not want to see in a more comfortable, complacent time. Aversive people sitting in those meetings saying it's not going to work out sometimes are pointing to things that nobody else wants to look at, that it's too uncomfortable to face. And so there can be a, a truthfulness that is, is really beautiful and important in that aversion, whether it's coming out as anger or fear. There's something about pointing to what's wrong and not disguising it, not, not pretending it's another way. So that's why it said that anger can transmute into wisdom, clear seeing. Because what you want, what one wants, is that, that kind of penetrating intelligence without the burning, without the delusion of being lost in the anger, like I was with my computer friend or with myself. We don't need the, the proliferation of the mind as we consider one terrible outcome after another. What we need is that kind of cutting through energy. And so through mindfulness, it's like we reach right into the heart of the aversion, of the anger or the fear, and we take what's good rather than just being subsumed by it. And it said that the, you might say, the purified form of, of delusion is equanimity, not the equanimity of not noticing anything about the bed in the room, but not the equanimity of of disconnection or not paying attention, but the equanimity of being fully connected, really present, really alive with any circumstance, even if it's neutral, and yet balanced. So to bring delusion to its more purified form, we of course need mindfulness to be able to see things as they are, to connect more truly to pleasant experience so that we don't cling so much, more truly to unpleasant experience so we're not so lost in aversion, and much more truly to neutral experience so we're not just spacing out when things are neutral. We need to be able to, to pay attention in order to diminish the force of delusion in the mind, to pay clear attention with the power of silence, which means non-reactivity, that can melt all of our rigidly held ideas of how things should be and why they are the way that they are. It can melt all that we think we know 
in a, an artificial sense. It can melt our fear of not knowing and not being willing to admit that. To let the mind settle into the natural property of an experience, not to be so absolutely lost in all of that, those layers. That really is almost like the... It's almost like the definition of mindfulness meditation. If you're biting down in that chili pepper, it's just feel the burning, stinging sensation. It's not that the flood of interpretation and thought won't come. It's not that it shouldn't come, but it's so fast. And it can take us so far away from our actual experience that we almost don't have the chance when lost in it, we don't have the chance to learn for ourselves. What's the nature of eating a chili pepper? What is it really? Not what I've been taught, not what I presume, not what I imagine. What is it? What's the nature of a sound, of a thought? That's really what we practice when we practice mindfulness. It's that kind of interest, that sort of wonderment. Let me look at my experience. Let me discover And to do that, we need to let go and let go and let go of all of the seeming understandings that we will have. Oh, well, it's called the Catskills because, you know, it lies closest to the Catskill Mountains. We have to let that go in order to actually maybe ask the question, why in the world is this called the Catskill Mountains? We have to ask it of our own experience, whatever it might be. The Buddha said, one who has abandoned greed, hatred, and delusion, such a one has crossed the ocean of samsara with its waves and whirlpools, monsters and demons, has traversed it and gone to the other shore. So our raft for that traversing, for moving to the other shore, is mindfulness. That's our vehicle to be aware, to be connected to whatever our experience happens to be we will transform the, the tremendous conditioned force of, of grasping aversion and delusion. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.